And now, here they are, the Beatles! Hi, I'm Justin Shears, and welcome to Only a Northern Song. In this series, I'll be exploring the words and the music of the Beatles, but not through the usual tracks that we all know so well. I'll be delving into my extensive collection of outtakes, home recordings and demos, alternate mixes and interviews, to shed some new light on lesser-known aspects of the Beatles' recorded legacy. loss of manager Brian Epstein was undoubtedly the biggest shock that the Beatles had suffered in many years. Even though his role had changed since the Beatles ended touring in 1966, he was still an integral cog in the Beatle machine and helped the band maintain an even keel when waters became rough. While the group clearly needed no help creatively, their business affairs had always been handled by Brian and his team. And now, he was gone. It was a huge void. We didn't know anything about, you know, our personal um, business and finances. And, you know, he'd t- just taken care of everything. And I suppose it was, uh, it was chaos after that. We were kind of managing ourselves, really. It was sad, you know, it was very sad to lose an old mate under those circumstances. But uh, I don't think the major worry was, oh, what are we going to do now? We haven't got a manager. Because I say we'd been moving away from that. They just came back to England, to London, and they were in deep shock. It was a terrible thing to happen. And it changed their lives, too, because they had suddenly, they had no, no one really to steer them. As far back as the early days of Beatlemania, Brian Epstein had set up a company called Beatles Limited to help shield their growing income from the taxman. This entity evolved into Beatles Co. in April 1967, the seed of what would eventually become Apple Corps. With Brian's death, the Beatles would begin to play a more prominent role in their own business affairs, largely under the guidance of ex-tour manager Neil Aspinall. What we really decided was we had to keep on trucking, right? Because we don't, obviously they'd always discussed whatever they were doing with Brian. Right now there was nobody, there was Brian's organization, right? But we hadn't related to that. We'd only ever related to, to Brian. We're suddenly like chickens without heads. What are we gonna do? What are we gonna do? You know, that's when Neil kind of stepped in and tried to figure out what was happening. As far as I was concerned, we had to get it together, you know? And, but the other people out there who were um, Brian's associates, if you like, you know, accountants, lawyers, all of that sort of stuff. You know, I think it was, uh, you know, suddenly maybe, you know, the lunatics had now got hold of the asylum. You know, what what were the Beatles going to do? And so there was a lot of, um, you know, different sets of advice coming in at them about what they should do. But we decided we needed, uh, we needed uh, an office and an organisation of our own, you know, and that's... Uh, really why we expanded Apple, because Apple already existed. You know, it was, uh, I think it was a publishing company on, uh, in an office on Baker Street. It seems that Paul now took the adage of the show must go on seriously, quite possibly as a way of dealing with Brian's death. 
Sometimes throwing oneself into work is a way to cope with grief. In hindsight, though, John saw this as Paul wanting to take control of the band for his own purposes. At some point, you know, I know John got a bit annoyed sort of saying, you know, Paul's sort of trying to be the leader of the group and stuff. It's, it's possible that I was there more than anyone. You know, that I was, I mean, when we did Magical Mystery Tour, for instance, I ended up kind of directing it, even though we said, well, the Beatles have directed it at the end. Um, just because I was there most of the time and all the late night chats with the cameramen about what we're going to do tomorrow would tend to be me rather than the others. I think Paul had an impression, he has it now like a parent, that uh, we should be thankful for what he did, you know. But he kept, for, for keeping the Beatles going, but when you look upon it objectively, he kept it going for his own sake, you know. But not for my sake, did he? Struggle. But Paul made an attempt to carry on as if Brian hadn't died, you know, by saying, now, now, boys, we're going to make a record. You know, and being the kind of person I am, I thought, well, you know, we're going to make a record. All right, so I went along, we went and made a record. Was my little mystery tour after Brian? Yeah, well, that was the, the real... I think Paul had a tendency to come along and say, well, he's written his ten songs, let's record now. And I said, well, give us a few days <laughs> and I'll knock a few off, you know.
a monitor mix of takes eight and nine of I Am The Walrus, the first song recorded after Brian's death. These early takes were recorded in Studio One at Abbey Road on the 5th of September 1967, with John on electric piano, Paul on bass, George on electric guitar, and Ringo behind his trusty Ludwig kit. Of the 16 attempts made this day, only five were complete, with take 16 being marked as best for now. The evening of the 6th of September saw a reduction mix of take 16 to a fresh tape and called take 17, onto which Paul and Ringo added more bass and drums and John laid down his lead vocal, a sound achieved by studio engineer Jeff Emmerich by combining microphone choice and overloading the preamplifier to the mixing console, thereby pushing the sound to the point of distortion.
a rare mono mix from Acetate of Take 17, with John's iconic vocals front and centre. The track would need to wait nearly three weeks to be brought off the shelf again. Also recorded on the 6th of September were two brand new tracks, one each from Paul and George. According to the Beatles' official biographer at the time, Hunter Davies, Paul's new tune was written at home in March 1967, around the same time as with a little help from my friends. Davies recalls that John, who was also there at the time, suggested that Paul write the lyrics down, but Paul said he would just remember them. While Paul has misremembered the song being about the Maharishi, which is impossible considering they hadn't met him in March when the song was being written, Beatles assistant Alistair Taylor recalls a moment on Primrose Hill when walking with Paul and his sheepdog Martha. A man appeared seemingly from nowhere, exchanged greetings with Paul and Taylor, and then disappeared from view. Paul and Alistair felt that they had shared an almost religious experience, fueled by the fact that they had been talking about the existence of God only seconds before the mystery man appeared. Day after day, alone on a hill The man with the foolish grin is sitting perfectly still And nobody wants to know him, they can see that he's just a fool For he never gives an answer, but the fool on the hill Sees the sun going down and the eyes in his head See the world spinning round His head in a cloud The man with the foolish grin is talking perfectly loud But nobody wants to hear him They can see that he's just a fool But he never gives an answer But the fool on the hill Sees the sun going down And the eyes in his head See the world spinning Oh, 
studio demo take one of The Fool on the Hill. Recording for the song would commence properly in a couple of weeks' time, after filming for the Magical Mystery Tour film had finished. George's only contribution to Magical Mystery Tour, also started on the 6th of September and mostly completed on the 7th, was inspired by a trip he took to Los Angeles at the height of the Summer of Love, staying at a house in the Hollywood Hills. Derek Taylor, the Beatles' former publicist, now lived in LA and had arranged to meet with George, but got impossibly lost on the way there. While waiting for Derek to arrive, George began writing the song on a small Hammond organ in the house. The address? 1567 Blue Jay Way. Well, Jim, Blue Jay Way is sort of like a moaning thing that George has done. Yeah. 
Mono Remix 1 of Blue Jay Way as it sounded at the end of the session on the 7th September 1967. Only one take was needed for the backing track, with George on the studio's Hammond RT3 organ, John on a Lowry organ, and Paul and Ringo on bass and drums, respectively. Extensive use of phasing and automatic double tracking added to the foggy feel that George was after. A remix and a tape copy were made for pre-production on the Magical Mystery Tour film. The song would be further embellished in October. Ahead of filming, which was due to run through September and into early October, the Beatles felt the need for some incidental music for the film. They also realised that Ringo did not yet have a vocal spotlight. If you look to your left, ladies and gentlemen, the view is not very inspiring. Ah, but if you look to your right... mono remix of Flying, or Aerial Tour Instrumental, as it was titled well into November. One of very few songs credited to all four Beatles, Ringo's vocal on this instrumental, which seems like an oxymoron in itself, was way up front in the mix. Several differences are noticeable between this and the final released version, including slide whistle sounds played on the Mellotron flutes, and a Dixieland jazz band stock ending taken directly from the Mellotron tapes, complete with a hearty yeah from Bill Franson, one of the Mellotron's creators. Like many of the Beatles recordings at this time, it would be perfected sometime later. Recordings were paused for now, so the Beatles and their guests could board that big yellow coach and head off to the West Country for a week or two to film, well, Whatever happened. Hello, 
Flower, you all right, girl? We'll sit here. Yes, I'll have the window seat. Well, I'm the actor, you see. That uh, was established in Help and a Hard Day's Night. So I was invited to be the actor and would weave it wherever it went. And I sure. Well, and I did with that lady, my aunt. So, but we had to get on the bus. That was the first thing. We had to get on the bus and go on a magical mystery tour. And it all been decorated. You know, we had the couriers and the, the guy. It was like loaded the bus when we got on. And then we just sat around and it went on from there. A lot of shouting, hey, why don't we do this? And Dennis O'Dell who was like the producer. He was so great because, you know, like six o'clock that night. All right, we want uh, six short people, a couple of uh, zebras, whatever it was. And what time, we start like 10 tomorrow? But he pulled it off. He was very good. <laughs> and as we said earlier, our girl reporter Miranda Ward accompanied the Beatles on their magical mystery tour. And as a special scoop for Seen and Heard, Miranda speaks with George Harrison now about the magic tour and Beatles film plans. Who had the original idea for the Magical Mystery Tour? I think Paul had the idea and wrote a song called Magical Mystery Tour. And so we decided to do it now so that we have it ready by November or December. We'll help to direct the thing and probably to edit it. So the more people involved, the less of our movie it tends to be. This part that we've been doing is mainly just to tie the whole show together. Because it's called the Magical Mystery Tour, then this is just a typical coach tour. That anything can happen. You see, that's the difference, because it's magic, then we can do anything. So these parts, these sequences, we just had a few ideas. It's mainly just to show the people getting on the coach and a few little things that happened during the course of the coach trip. To get the actors, we looked through that actor's book, the spotlight or wherever. Oh, we need someone like that, someone like that. And we needed the large lady as my auntie, because I was going to play this person with his auntie. Take nine. We knew we weren't doing a regular film. We were doing a crazy, roly-poly 60s film. We, I am the Eggman. You were the, you know, and I just wandered off to France and did that um, Fool on the Hill stuff. We were driving around this airfield in the uh, Mini Cooper. Your mother should know. And that was quite interesting. I quite enjoyed that. John is sitting with little Nicola, who was the child of one of the people on the bus. And she was a nice little girl. And it was lovely to see John being so comfortable in playing with this little girl. And I think you can see by the sequence that she enjoyed what he was doing. But it's a side of John that you never really saw. With the bulk of filming complete, the Beatles set about recording more songs for the soundtrack on the 16th of September beginning with a remake of a song previously attempted back in August. Do you want us to do it again, George? Okay. 
with Siggy and Mouth. Let's all get up and let's all get up and dance to a song that was a hit before your mother was born. Though she was born a long, long time ago, your mother should know. Your mother should know. Sing it again. Let's all get up and dance to a song that was a hit. Before your mother was born Though she was born a long, long time ago Your mother should know Your mother should know She was born a long, long time ago Your mother should know Your mother should know Your mother should know Your mother should know Take 27 of Your Mother Should Know. The remake had begun at Take 20, and 11 attempts were made, featuring Paul on harmonium, John on harpsichord, Ringo on drums, and George on bongos. The song would be left again for Paul to think about, and this version would not be taken any further. A week later, on the 25th of September, the lads were back in Studio 2 again to begin recording Paul's Fool on the Hill, the studio demo for which was featured in our last episode. Three takes were all that were needed to perfect the backing track before a reduction mix to a new tape was made and called Take 4, ready for more overdubs. Can we just have a little less guitar in the earphones? No, like, move away. Today, alone on a hill 
The man with the foolish grin is sitting perfectly still And nobody wants to know him They can see that he's just a fool But he never gives an answer But the fool on the hill Sees the sun going down And the eyes in his head The man with the empty mind is talking perfectly loud But nobody seems to hear him For they think that he's just a fool And no one will go quite near him But the fool on the hill Sees the sun going down And the eyes in his head They think that he's just a fool For he never gives an answer But the fool on the hill Sees the sun going down And the eyes in his head That's it for this episode. Next time, we dive deep into the remaining sessions for Magical Mystery Tour and ring out the momentous year of 1967. Until next time, 